Welcome to the Not Almost There podcast. I'm your host, Joe Chura, and I got to start out this episode with gratitude. I've been talking for weeks about our event, Go, which took place last weekend with Rich Roll, Jordan Burroughs, and Cedric King. I'm not going to get into the nitty gritty of the day. That will be a future episode, but now we are exactly one week past the event, and I do want to acknowledge everyone who supported and participated in the day. I've received so much love about the event, but really, the day would not be what it was without the help of BJJ Labs, which is my jiu-jitsu gym, 360 Studios in Naperville, and Athletic Brewing for sponsoring and supporting the event. I can't wait to share some of the footage with you. Subscribe to the Not Almost There YouTube channel to not only see the footage, but also the video version of these podcasts that I publish on a weekly basis. All right, now for this week's episode, man, today is a topic about something I think about often, the idea of dedication. I feel like we are part of a generation that was told to keep our options open when we're trying to find a job or even in our personal lives. I can hear my parents' voices echoing this in my ear even today, keep your options open. But even at the most basic level, if you think about this, how many times have you found yourself endlessly scrolling through Netflix and you just can't choose one movie or show? So this notion of keeping your options open is a bit of a fallacy. And my guest, Pete Davis, is an expert when it comes to dedication. He was asked to give a commencement speech at Harvard on just that topic. And to his surprise, his speech blew up and went viral. Today, it has over 30 million views. Pete knew there was something to this topic and knew there was an audience craving more insight. So he practiced what he preached and dedicated himself during the pandemic and wrote a book called, you guessed it, Dedication. Today, Pete and I get into the secrets of dedicating yourself to a larger purpose and why you should. So let's focus this next hour on getting up, going outside, and listening to this week's episode. But before you do that, if you want to maximize your walk or run, I have a fun game. Do a burpee every time you hear the word dedication. See you on the other side. Welcome, Pete, to the Anonymous There podcast. So glad to be here. Thanks for having me on, Joe. Congratulations on the book, Dedicated. I, I read it, and I thought there was a ton of great ideas in there, and I want to dive into a bunch of those today. First off, um, you explain in the book a lot of different concepts regarding commitments, and I can't help but think of the paradox of choice that we have in today's world. But also looking at you and your background, you being young and, and having thought about this concept of fully being committed to something, what made you think about writing this book in the first place? Yeah, you know, this book is the product of 10 years of thinking and observing and talking with people about this theme. And it was attempting to answer a very large question. And the question was basically, what should we do about the times that we're living in? <laughs> you know, we live in really dark times. Um, a lot of people my age feel that way. You know, community is in decline. People feel isolated. There's major political problems there. It feels like our nation isn't thriving. There's a feeling of all of our institutions um, being corrupted and us losing faith in them. And that's showing up in the polling data. You know, our amount of institutional trust and intersocial trust, for that matter, are way in decline. And there's a feeling over the last 20 years that there's been a set of hopes that might fix this, like the internet or certain political figures or this, that, or the other that have been dashed. So we're in like a really disappointed, dark, confused time. And a lot of people my age are wondering, you know, it's the great question. What do you do about it? What should we do in life right now? Um, and when we turn to education, you know, what our educational institutions are telling us is the message we're usually getting from them and from our culture at large is what you should do is, and this is what I believe is the creed of our age, keep your options open. 
Um, you're supposed to preserve your optionality for your future self. Take care of your future self by leaving as many doors open for your future self. Don't tie yourself down. It's what the philosopher Zygmunt Bauman called liquid modernity. Stay liquid. Don't make yourself into any shape because you never know what the future will bring. And then a lot of the wellness messaging, you know, around what's happening out there is, oh, it's really bad out there, but just take care of yourself and everything will be okay. And this is not enough. You know, this was not a the right answer to these questions because it doesn't help address those problems out there. And the people who keep their options open and only focus on themselves end up not feeling a lot of peace and joy and impact. Um, it's not what we're seeking. You know, they don't feel empowered. They don't feel happy. They don't feel at peace. And so I wanted an intervention in this messaging with a different answer um, that Keeping your options open is not the way to respond to our time. The way to respond to our time is to dig in and dedicate yourself to a particular thing outside of yourself, a place, a person, a community, a cause, an institution. That's the thing that's going to actually get us towards solving some of these great problems of our time. And as a bonus, finding you know the empowerment and peace and joy that we're all seeking in this age of anxiety. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. And you... Talk about this concept that I haven't heard before, long-haul heroes. And one of the people that you mentioned that have inspired you was your grandmother that happens to live not far from where I'm at today, Riverside. Or she she had been like the longest resident there. Is that true? And how much yes, did that inspire yeah, no, you to write this was, book? Yes, with the, with the small exception of during World War II, my grandpa was called to the National Labor Relations Board in D.C. to do a few things. Um, so the, there was a four-year period. She wasn't in Riverside, but her whole life from 1917 to 2010 was in this one town, like a lovely small town outside of Chicago called Riverside, Illinois, for uh, those not from the area. Um, and what she's an example of and what I was trying to show an example uh, show throughout the book is that there are all these heroes we hear about that have big, brave moments. You know, those are the cinematic heroes. They're, I call them the Hollywood dragon slayers. You know, they have this big moment where there's a big dragon that they slay by giving the perfect speech at the perfect time or having the perfect comeback or having that moment where you confront the enemy or something like that. But most of us don't face you know, big, brave moments. Most of us don't have kind of a singular dragon that um, is presented to us or thrust upon us for our heroism. Most of us are just given daily life, you know, morning after morning where you can decide to do something or not do something or keep doing something. And what I wanted to draw our attention to with this book were the people that become the dramatic moments themselves by sticking at something for a long time and turning, you know, um, either turning an idea into reality or stewarding an institution or loving a person into being or um, building something or, or taking care of a place over many years, over the long haul. That's why I call them long haul heroes. And my grandma's a great example of that. She was she loved this town. She was an active member of this town. She was part of the local Democratic Party for 70 years. She was part of her church for 70 years. She was part of the Legion of Mary, where they went and visited people who were sick or homebound. And the people that make the world go round are not the dragon slayers. You know, occasionally you got to have some big brave moment where you fight some invader or something. But um, most of the people that make the world go round are the people that do these normal daily life, weekly life day in, day out, year in, year out stuff. And um, I think we need to start celebrating them. And that was one of the purposes of this book. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I often hear, and I'm sure you've heard this too, and in fact, you, you wrote about this in some capacity, that you often underestimate or overestimate what you can do in the short term and then underestimate what you can accomplish in the long term. And two paths that your book goes down is, finding, you know, when you're walking down this virtual hallway and finding a room and going into that room and just sticking there, even though you may be distracted. But the other path is being very consistent over time. And I wanted to ask you, aside from your grandmother, is there a historical figure? I know you mentioned a lot of them, but is there one that really jumps out to you as a great example of, of this consistency and dedication? Yeah, I'll, t I'll, I'll talk about you know, there, I think there is an undisputed greatest movement in American history. I'll talk about a group of figures because often it's not alone. 
um, which is the abolitionist movement. And I think we don't, you know, we learn about it in school, but we don't learn about how amazing of a story this is. You know, tens of millions of people treated um, in a type of oppression that is worse than death. You know, they Ken Burns talked about how in the Civil War he found this wonderful quote, totally dark quote, where he said, it was um, night forever for slaves in America. And um, and this this was not you know, a few people that had slaves. It was totally um, connected to the whole economy of the country. Everyone had a stake in slavery continuing, you know, the most of the, everyone in power. Um, And there was a group of people, small group of people, 1% of the country at first. Um, And there were movements of uh, against slavery from like the start in the 1600s and 1700s, but it really took off in the early 1800s. And basically between like 1820 in 1865, a small group of dedicated people that were called monomaniacs, you know, abolitionists, took this idea from the total fringes of ending slavery to the White House, basically, and then eventually supported the White House in the kind of liberatory war that um, ended it. Um, uh, and, you know, ended the most uh, the the darkest scar in our nation's history and and inspired liberatory movements all around the world. And it was a ragtag group of about a hundred leaders, basically, you know, that eventually became thousands and tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands. But it started, you know, I talk about in the book, I, I, I have a scene where they're all celebrating the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863. Um, at the Boston Music Hall. We, we rarely talk about, there were times when people win, you know, you sometimes win. <laughs> um, and yeah. they were all having a party. But I flashed back as we went to each of the faces. And you take a guy, William Lloyd Garrison, 30 years before that celebration, he starts the Liberator newspaper. And he says, I, you know, he writes in 1800 speak, I will not shut up until this, this cause is won. And he publishes that paper every week. And it's like a crank paper for a while. And then it eventually becomes the, like a normal paper because he fights for it. You have Frederick Douglass who escaped slavery 24 years earlier and goes on speaking tours and writes a bestselling book and, and um, gains power and goes throughout the North to get the North excited about this. You have people like um, uh, Emerson who starts writing poems against slavery 20 years earlier. You have Harriet Beecher Stowe who writes Uncle Tom's Cabin and in pieces and agitates against slavery. You have people who start, you know, the Massachusetts Colored Men's Association who start organizing people for this. All this stuff that you hear about as big, brave moments in history, you know, the final battle, you know, Gettysburg or something, start with tiny trickles of people starting weekly routines 40 years prior. And the same goes for every movement. You know, we talk about Martin Luther King with his big, brave moments, fighting the fire hoses, giving the I have a dream speech. It starts in a church basement 10 years prior with him having a meeting with seven people to build more trust in Montgomery, Alabama. You hear about gay marriage passing and becoming this kind of you know, beautiful thing that happens in 2015. It starts with Evan Wolfson and others in 1983 writing a legal paper saying there's a constitutional right to it and no one, everyone thinks he's crazy and this is kind of a novelty paper that has no bearing on anything that'll actually happen. And so my whole message with this book on a political level is if you want the big march or the big fight to happen now, you're thinking about it wrong. You have to be the abolitionists in the 1820s. You have to be the civil rights fighters in the 1920s. You have to be the gay rights fighters in the 1980s, not the ones in their victories in the 1860s or 1960s or 2010s. Um, So all the causes you care about now that seem unstoppable – it has to start with a weekly meeting that you're holding, <laughs> um, and you have to be- and you have to be dedicated in the long run to make it happen. So, how do you convince folks that are kind of paralyzed by the paradox of choice that it is more important in many cases to make a commitment to something versus always looking for, you know, the next thing? And I know there's acronyms and you talk about them in the, in the book a bit, FOMO and VOLO and, you know, all this stuff in our world now where you turn on Netflix and many times um, you can spend an hour just choosing what you want to watch and you end up watching nothing. And in fact, uh, Netflix recently, I don't know if it was 
based on my persona on Netflix or what, but it, uh, or profile, I should say, it, it literally showed a screen and said, let us choose what we think you should watch. And <laughs> yeah, no, because I think it's, they're it's helping with the problem. infinite browsing mode. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So how do you balance those things? Yeah. You know, I think the reason that we infinitely browse, um, is three reasons. One is browsing itself is good. The enemy in this book is infinite browsing, not browsing. So, you know, you have to acknowledge first some browsing is good. Um, And, uh, you know, it gives you flexibility. You know, things can be chiller when you're open to browsing. It gives you authenticity. You get to find who your true self is by having adventures. It gives you a novelty. It's totally fun to browse around and try new things out. But the when browsing becomes infinite browsing is um, when those pleasures start curdling into pains, when flexibility becomes choice paralysis. You know, I jump from thing to thing, thus I can never stick at anything for too long because I'm always haunted by the other things I could have. When authenticity becomes isolation, you know, I'm so obsessed with finding myself that I never connect with anything um, outside of myself because it doesn't perfectly fit who I am. When the novelty curdles into shallowness, you know, um, I flipped through a hundred TikTok videos and um, I'm still seeing the most interesting thing that happened today, but suddenly it's not interesting anymore because you're like interesting dopamine is out, you know, um, and you suddenly want something deeper. So the first reason we infinitely browse is because browsing is good. It just eventually becomes bad. Um, and so to acknowledge, you know, it was good for a while and now it's becoming bad. So acknowledge you have a problem um, is the first part. Notice that the pains are outweighing the pleasures. Um, the second part is we have these fears. We're gripped by these fears. You know, one is the fear of regret. If I choose something, will I wake up 20 years later and wish I chose something else? Another is the fear of missing out. I'm happy with what I chose, but I'm worried about the responsibilities that come with it. That means I won't be able to be anywhere with anyone doing anything because I've committed to this thing. And a real hard one is the fear of association. You know, the, a lot of people in my generation feel this, Oh, I feel that committing to something will threaten my identity or my reputation or my, um, sense of control because there are other people involved in joining with that cause or that institution or that community or that person. And it's messy. Um, but here's the thing. Um, um, and because of these fears, you are trying to take care of your future self by infinitely browsing. You're saying, oh, I'm going to do my, my future self a solid by not giving them regret, not letting them miss out on anything, not having them deal with the messiness of other people. But here's the thing you have to understand. This is not, you might think you're giving a gift to your future self, but you're actually denying a gift to your future self. Because what is on the other side of each of those fears that you're denying your future self if you give in to each of those fears? On the other side of the fear of regret is the amazing, immense power of purpose, the rewiring of the meaning of your life partially around that commitment that gives you a fire in the belly that gives you a reason to wake up in the morning because you're committed to this cause or committed to this institution or developing this craft or caring for this person or building this idea or keeping this thing alive. On the other side of the fear of missing out are, are all of the deeper novelties of depth, not the novelty of the hot new thing, but the novelty of watching your kid turn 10, of celebrating your 20th anniversary, of becoming a master of a craft, of becoming an elder in a community, of really knowing a place or a person or an institution. Um, those are much deeper novelties than anything you're going to scroll through. Um, and finally, on the other side of the fear of association, it's obvious, is community. You know, the first day of joining a community sucks much more than being alone. Wearing your name tag, asking, oh, how many siblings do you have? Oh, here's my name. Here's how you pronounce my name. It sucks. I get it. That's not better than being alone. Um, and often it's like the second day because the first day you have the novelty of the community, but the second day you're like, I still feel uncomfortable around all these people. But if you stick with it through that valley of community building – what you eventually get to is something way better than being alone, more empowered than being alone, more secure than being alone, more comfortable than being alone, more joyful than being alone, which is belonging. And so what I just am trying to get across with this book is you think you're taking care of your future self by protecting them from missing out and regret and 
messiness of association. But what you're really doing is denying them purpose and depth and community. And your future self is going to look back and not say, oh, gosh, you closed all these doors for me and you got this messiness and now I can't go to the party because I have this commitment. They're going to look back and say, oh, my gosh, thank you for going through all of the hard first years of that stuff because now I'm just reaping what you sowed of purpose and depth and community and all that adds up together to joy. Pete, that makes a ton of sense. And I, I agree. And I've seen this and there's many examples. I want to get into a few in, in a few minutes, but how do you know that uh, giving the example and or analogy that you're going down this virtual hallway and it's better to pick a room than to just keep peeking in all of these rooms. It's better just to go in one and commit dedicate yourself to figuring out like being the best in that room or whatever it is. How do you know you're in the right room? How, what, what steps can you take to know that you have committed or dedicated yourself to the right path? Yeah. You know, one of my, uh, one of my big messages with this book is that if you're 60 or 70% of the way there, um, that's about as good as you can get. You know, um, and yeah. and your commitment will make up the rest of it. Um, so we're not the first step is to know that we're not trying to get to 100 um, percent. So how do we know how do we choose? Basically, this is this is the question you're asking. So it's like, OK, you're saying pick an option, but, you know, I'm st- maybe I'm not scared at all. I just don't know which one to pick. Like the menu's too long. Um, I talk in the book a bit about different methods of choosing. Um, And there are three kind of tools we have. So one is our head, the classic method of choosing rational analysis. You know, this is the one that's promoted in our culture the most. You know, the greatest example of this is the pro and con list. You know, make a list of pros and cons, try to analyze it, try to analyze where you're getting the best deal out of, things like that. That's one. But there's also, you know, that's using your brain. Another one is using your soul, which is what are you inspired by? You know, inspire is from the same thing as like perspire or like um, uh, it's like breathing in, you know, breathing out, like like letting something come in. Um, what you need to present yourself with something outside of yourself and see what um, kind of what makes you feel alive, what makes you feel like you've had a breath of fresh air. Um, you know, the uh, there is one long haul here I interviewed who advises her students what is the thing you love doing on your to-do list? That's probably the thing you like most. (laughs) Um, And that's the thing you're inspired by. And then there's kind of um, looking, you know, enlisting your heart. And there's this incredible um, flip of making decisions that I love that the Jesuits, the Catholic order of priests, the Jesuits um, use, and it's called Ignatian discernment. And what they use for Ignatian discernment is they totally flip the script on making a decision. So with rational analysis, we're looking at the options and our mind is is focused on, okay, option A, option B, option C. I'm thinking about the options. I'm thinking about the options. What Ignatian discernment does is they ask you to think about yourself when presented with the options. So what you do is you try to make option A real by really imagining yourself taking option A. Don't like really... If you can, test it out. If you can't, like really sit there quietly and think about, okay, if I'm going to go to Atlanta, I'm going to live in Atlanta, what will the weather be like? What will the streets be like? What will the traffic be like? What will the people be like? You know, if I'm going to go to Philadelphia instead, what will it be like? What will it be like? Um, and then you're supposed to ask, what do I feel when I imagine myself? It's examining yourself when presented with the option. And so I have this friend, John, who has this funny thing he does. When people present him with a choice, he just tells them one of the options. So usually the social thing to do is join people in their uncertainty. So if they're like, should I move to Atlanta or should I move to Philadelphia? Normal person goes, oh, well, I guess this is good about Atlanta, but I can see why you might want to go to Philadelphia. What John does is he goes, oh, definitely Philadelphia. No, Atlanta. That's awful. And then the goal isn't to get them to go to Philadelphia. The goal is to get them to feel like they've made the decision. And what they do is they say, oh, that's awful. I wouldn't want to do that. I want to be in Atlanta. It's where the thing is. And he goes, well, there's your answer. (laughs) And that's like a little mini example of Ignatian discernment. He forced them to 
um, see, and then their heart did the rest. Yeah, I read that in your book. I thought that was genius because you automatically react and you're like, wait, no, I don't really. And you you tend to answer your own question then at that point. Amen. Uh, yeah, no, that, that makes a ton of sense. Uh, and I think that's really valuable insight to sit there and visualize what is this going to look like and feel if I'm going to make a decision. And these can be large decisions or small decisions. It doesn't really matter. But the bottom line is, you know, often what, what you see is the outcome of someone's efforts and you don't see all the work that it took to get them there. You know, it's like an iceberg. I love that iceberg yeah. picture, that visual because you see the iceberg at the end, but you don't see the hundreds and thousands of years that it, that it took to <laughs> accumulate, you know, obviously. And most of the joy is in the accumulation that comes from the commitment. It's not the initial choice. Here's the thing. There are people, there are happy, impactful um, people everywhere, and they're doing all these random things, and none of them are the optimal thing for them to do. That's the thing. There are so many lives that you could live. The, I, this isn't my quote, but it's a, some, there's some beautiful quote out there I read. Where it's so many lives you can live, and each of them are sufficient. Um, you know, is is it the optimal thing for anyone to like be an ophthalmologist or be a plumber or live here or live there? Like we all like it's not. But they've made a commitment to those things. They've made a commitment to that craft, or they made a commitment to marrying that person, or they made a commitment to that place. And in becoming part of it, in their dedication, in layering on time, in learning the mastery of the place or the person or the thing, in um, in becoming comfortable in it, in building community around it, and finding purpose in it, it becomes the best possible thing. But it's the it's the act of choosing and committing that made it the best possible thing, not that they all had the best decision making process. Um, at the beginning. And that's the that's what I'm just trying at every angle with this message and this book to get at. Um, it's more about the dedication than about the choice. Yeah. And, and going back to that, the paradox of choice, like some relevant examples, um, there's a study done by Leinger and Lepper. I'm sure you know about this one from 2000, and I just made a note of it. So I'm kind of reading it, but a free example table, or, uh, I'm sorry, a free sample table at a grocery store. Um, they did a test. They did like this AB a, test where they presented six sample items and then they presented 24. When they presented six sample items at this, at this table, they had third, they had realized that 30% of those people made a purchase as opposed to having 24 samples, 3% of people made a purchase. And as, as you look at that, and it made me think of like, as silly as this is, like in an out Burger. in an out Burger has what, like, fi- like literally five items. And it, yeah. in the book, you give examples of Chipotle and a few other things. But you look at the success of, of a few options and being excellent at those options, and it clearly can create a blueprint for life and create a blueprint for, for uh Success, and I was just wondering your thoughts on that. No, amen. You can see it everywhere from the stupidest examples to the most <laughs> yeah. deeply profound examples. You know, I talk about Trader Joe's and and Chipotle, and In and Out Burger is a great example of this where you know you can, most people know all of the menu, they, they've memorized the menu of In and Out Burger or Chipotle or something, and people are like in love with Trader Joe's where they have the one Trader Joe's hot sauce as opposed to like the 17 at a normal supermarket that's bigger. Um, and it's because of this principle. And, you know, I owe all this to the psychologist Barry Schwartz who wrote the book, The Paradox of Choice. And the basic idea for those who haven't read it is you want some choice, you know, having zero choice doesn't lead to happiness, but you get to a certain point where if all the choices are present to you, you know, 31 flavors instead of three flavors, you, um, you, your whole relationship to existence changes because you're constantly in analysis mode and you're constantly haunted by the other alternatives. And what this all gets, and you know, I can see it in really profound examples. I talk about the Mormons on my camp. I'm not Mormon myself, but the Mormons who I were, was friends with in college, they were, you know, the, the devout ones only wanted to marry other Mormons. And so their dating pool was like 11 people on campus, whereas the rest of us, it was like 2,000 people. 
And yet their marriages are just as happy. You know, they're, they're, right. um, they seem satisfied. They just change their relationship to how they process people. Whereas the rest of us are like crying. Well, you know, uh, 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 what is uh, swiping through a thousand names, you know, anyone to find the exact perfect person that relates to us. And the big method, the big message of this, there's two. One is that, again, we're not trying to optimize static, independent qualities, you know, we're trying to enter into relationships with things and grow and change and be transformed as we enter into relationships with them. You know, when you get married to someone, you know, you want to get a little bit aligned. You want to be somewhat compatible. This isn't an endorsement of written, arranged marriages. But most of what your relationship becomes is the dedication scaffolding. You're dedicated to each other and you grow into a relationship that works. You form part of your identity through your relationship. Um, and, uh, and so that's one thing, you know, we are fun. We are capable of being transformed. We're not static, independent, rigid people trying to find things that perfectly fit ourselves. Um, and then the second part is that when you're, when you relate to the world in, analysis and judgment at all times. You know, at some points you need analysis and judgment. But when you relate to the world at all times in analysis and judgment, you're missing out on another way of relating to the world, which is the comfort and purpose and depth that comes with, I'm done analyzing and judging. I am in this. Maybe once a year, I'll have a retreat to reflect. Maybe if it's really not working out, I'll think about if this is working for me. But to have times in the in-between where you just say, this is where I am. This is the place I'm at. This is the person I'm with. This is the idea I'm working on. And I'm going to start noticing different things than thinking about what's around the corner or what did I not choose? What's something in the future that could be better? What's something in the past I could have done instead? But being here and, you know, learning all the corners of the yard that you have as your yard, learning all the corners of the person that you're in a relationship with, um, learning to love the idea that you've decided to make into reality, you know, building, um, that's what we're missing out on if we're judging and analyzing the whole time. Yeah, I, I, I totally get that and see it. Essentially, it's enjoying the process, enjoying being present, be where your feet are, enjoy the process of whatever you choose. When, when, I, uh, when I also was thinking about the book and some of, of which is how do you go about this? So you go into the room, let's say this virtual room, and now you're in there. What I love about how you approach this is saying, you know, take one day at a time. Like when you make a plan, man plans, God laughs, right? Like things are going to change and you're going to have to adapt. So it's more about taking those steps forward versus, um, really just kind of focusing on the end goal. Obviously the end goal is important, but it's those micro goals that get you to the end goal. Yeah. This was one of my, this was one of my favorite discoveries. I interviewed 50 long haul heroes for the book. One of my absolute favorite discoveries was that so many of them, you know, I thought, oh gosh, this is going to be such a boring book because it's about people doing the same thing over and over again. <laughs> you know, yeah. 200 yeah. pages of, you know, and then they had the meeting again, and then they had the meeting again, and then they did the process again. But what all of these long haul heroes, you know, experience people, and I define a long haul hero as someone who's dedicated to something over the long, you know, over many years, um, sometimes 50, sometimes even five or whatever. Um, it's a total adventure within the commitment, like inside of the commitment is not necessary. Like sometimes it means doing the same routine over and over again, but all of them were these rip roaring, rollicking, you know, roller coasters of an experience within their commitment, you know, it, but that, that adventure was given form and sometimes prompted by being committed to something, you know, it's the difference between like, you know, when, when you have no commitments and you have no form to your life, it seems like it's really exciting, like static, watching static on a TV. It's always different. 
you know, oh, like all the pixels are changing all the time. But to live in static is hell. You know, it's it's actually all the same. You know, to scroll through a hundred TikTok videos, even though they're all interesting, you know, eventually it becomes a form of, you know, it becomes uh, horror because because it's right. just like another thing that has no context, another thing that is not part of a larger story, another random thing. What these people do is they they give form to their life by their dedication. I'm always going to be a harmonica player. Mickey Raphael, who was Willie Nelson's harmonica player, who I interviewed. Ken Burns, who I interviewed. You know, always going to work in this one form called documentary and this one topic called American history. Evan Wolfson, who fought for gay marriage. I'm going to work on this one cause over 32 years. Um, Within that, they have this story that gives meaning and doesn't make it all static, but they're doing all these amazing things. Ken Burns is learning about all these different areas and meeting the president and, you know, having the civil war and then suddenly talking about the Roosevelt's and suddenly talking about Jackie Robinson and baseball. Um, Mickey Raphael is going from being a guy walking around his high school track, learning the harmonica alone, to being in Willie Nelson's band, to playing for presidents and traveling all over the world and becoming the most famous harmonica player. Evan Wolfson is going from writing kind of novelty law review articles to running an interstate campaign for this cause that's going to change America to fighting a final, you know, uh, court battle and, and, you know, being in the Rose Bowl parade or whatever. Um, and, um, and so all of them, it's, it's an adventure inside and the adventure is given meaning and form by the stability of the consistent commitment. And just on a simple, concrete level, talk about talk to anyone who's raised a kid. I haven't. I've only interviewed them, but um, or anyone who's been in a long marriage, um, and they will all tell you it's an adventure within that as well. Amen. And I I love this point though because the example of watching TikTok videos over and over again. Like my daughter last night, she was, I caught her watching YouTube. She's not allowed to watch YouTube without my permission because it just is a rabbit hole. But I can totally see that as you get wrapped up in this hour-long thing, YouTube's job is to keep you on YouTube, essentially. And at the end of the day, you didn't accomplish anything unless you're doing reviews on YouTube videos and that's your job, right? Versus just dedicating a portion of that time into something bigger over time. Is there an example that stands out to you where someone put in a small amount of time on a daily basis, yeah. whether that be minutes or less than an hour, but accomplished something oh, large man. or extraordinary? Yes. Yeah. No, no. This is so I, you know, I, I actually should work on this in, in these when I'm talking about this book, because I, I usually like kind of hooking people in by talking about the epic stories of, you know, these people who devoted their whole life to something and it became their full identity. But, um, you know, I'm, this is not just like, you know, some people might take this book and this message to be, you know, this is what I'm going to throw my profession into or my whole being. But I actually think this whole principle go, you know, scales down literally to, you know, to apply to even the most mundane things ever, you know, like, and I try to have little like one-off stories in the book about this, you know, you spend, I talk about, um, I talk about how these are like, you know, there's this financial idea. It's a weird metaphor, but there's this financial idea of like a income generating asset, like a bond. You know, you have an asset that you invest in something and it generates income every year or you invest in a rental property or something and it generates income every year. Income generating asset. There are like these joy and impact generating assets that dedication can give you. Um, like, and you know, by which I mean, you take a little bit of time to go deep on something and suddenly you have it forever, you know? And I talk about, um, you know, people who developed an expertise on something and then they're able to talk about it and understand it forever. You know, people who learn guitar or piano or something, then forever you can play guitar. You know, you might get a little rusty, you know, over time and you got to refresh, but it's not, it doesn't, you know, you can learn guitar at 17 and you can play like the five chords. You know, I, I can do this, you know, I, I haven't gotten past that, but um, play the five chords forever and play all the folk songs in America, you know? And, um, and, you know, one of my big messages, um, 
you know, tiny little bits of mentorship that you give to someone once a month totally change people. You know, I interviewed these, um, the head of the mentor, major mentorship program in my home city of DC. Um, and they said, you know, they have, they talk about, you know, they have two potential mentors coming in. One's a very charismatic, entertaining guy and the other isn't, um, but the former guy isn't ready to put in three years and the latter guy is ready to consistently show up. They take the latter guy any day because in the end, what a mentee needs is someone, this is their quote, someone that shows up and chooses them over and over again in a consistent way. That means the world to someone. And so all those mentors are just meeting with their mentee once a month, you know, and then, you know, texting with them occasionally and giving them advice. And some of them, I talked with some of them who had been doing it for 10 years and they become like second father figures to these people. And so, um, you know, even I even talk about, let's go to the smallest possible level, which is my original metaphor for this whole thing, which is the Netflix browsing screen. You watch a great movie or a great documentary and that depth of putting in two hours to really experience a story sticks with you for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, if it's a great movie or documentary. If you watch, um, you know, this, uh, some documentary on World War II or some documentary on how, like, the fishing industry is bad, you it might change your life forever and change the way you ever think about it. And you're doing those two hours of scrolling through TikTok or Twitter videos <laughs> or YouTube random scrolling. Um, anyway, none of that sticks with you. It flows away like snowflakes. But if you put in just a little bit to go deep on something, suddenly it etches itself into your whole being. And so on all levels, um, this kind of principle uh, uh, is active. I absolutely love that point. And that's what I wanted to get across. So thank you for sharing that those, those examples. And even if it's five or 10 minutes to that small incrementality over time adds up to something really large. And if you're learning a skill, you can take that skill with you for the rest of your life. And, and often I think about, you know, working out or exercise like these, even if it's 10, 20 minutes a day over time, that's going to do a lot more than going hard for five hours once a month. So, yes. So, yeah. Amen. Consistency. Yeah. The, uh, a few examples that I really love, and I heard you talk about these admittedly on another podcast too, is the, is the tattoo on the face example yeah. and in the bucket. And yeah, I'm, I was wondering if you could share those examples with the audience. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they're great. They're great pairing because one's very goofy and one's very kind of, uh, moralistic. So, um, um, but I, I love both of them. So, I interviewed, I wanted to interview a tattoo artist um, because, and I actually wasn't going to interview them as a long haul hero themselves. I was just going to ask about their experience watching other people make the commitment because a tattoo is a form of commitment. You know, it's, I'm going to always have this on my body. Um, and I wanted to respect that as a form of commitment. I didn't want all of these to be like hunky dory Sunday school examples, right. you know? Yeah. Um, and, but then I got into talking to this tattoo artist in my town, Amy Jones, um, uh, about her own life in the tattoo industry. And she I, she, I told her about the theme of the book and she was like, actually, I had a moment like this where I was choosing between multiple options and then I made a commitment. And I said, oh, tell me about the story. And she goes, um, you know, I was fiddling around at this tattoo parlor doing a little bit. You know, I wasn't officially licensed or certified yet. Um, and I was hanging around this parlor a lot. And at one point, you know, I was thinking like, oh, should I go like, this was a phase of my life and I should go do something else or is this something I really want to do? And everyone was like saying, oh, you should really get your license and learn the, the art and like become a full-time tattoo artist. And she was just grappling. Should I do that? Should I not? Should I do that? Should I not? And then one day she decided to get a face tattoo. <laughs> and I said, oh my gosh, a face tattoo. <laughs> you know, why'd you do that? And she said, well, once I get a face tattoo, I have to be a tattoo artist because that's one of the jobs where you're allowed to have a face tattoo. <laughs> I'm not, you know, she said to me, I'm not going to be a Walmart greeter after that. Yeah, um, dedication. And she said, after that moment, she, this was like a great point about why you need to like burn the ships behind you and really, you know, go all in on something. She said, after that moment, I felt totally at peace 
about being a tattoo artist because I knew I, there was no going back. I did it. Um, and it was such a great example of, you know, switching your mindset from analysis and judging all the grappling of what should I be to loving what you're in and being what you're in. And, um, and she had a totem on her face that forced that. So my big message with the book is get a proverbial face tattoo. So the parents out there, don't worry about uh, me recommending this book to your kids. It's not telling them to get an actual one unless that's what you're into. Um, But uh, get a proverbial face tattoo of like making it part of your identity, vocalizing your commitment. I had a buddy to get the Iron Man tattooed on his neck before he did an Iron Man. So yeah, you better be doing the would, Iron Man. It would have been very awkward. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. My my example of my own face tattoo is writing this book. Like, I better be a dedicated person in my life after this because yeah. I'm now the guy who wrote the book about dedication. <laughs> so, exactly. So, um, yeah, and you better run the Iron Man after you get the Iron Man tattoo. Um, the the story of the bucket, and I love ending on this. So I'm really glad you asked that. It's from this wonderful farmer philosopher poet intellectual Wendell Berry, um, who's one of the great Americans of our time. Um, and who, who, if you haven't heard of him, go read some Wendell Berry. It'll, it'll change your life. Um, the, he talks about this bucket on his grandfather's farm and it's a bucket that was forgotten about. It was hung on a nail on a fence post and over time, because it was forgotten about and just stayed there stably on that fence post on that nail. Um, it started gathering things. It started gathering feathers that fell. It started gathering rain that fell, some dirt. Birds flew in and messed with things, put worms in there. Other animals found things to eat. Bugs came in there. Animals died in there. And then, you know, their bodies became part of it. And then, um, and one time he found the bucket and inside was earth. Inside was, you know, the compost of all the things that had fallen over time. And that earth is a magical thing. It's something you can plant. It's something that can't be created immediately. It had to be from that stable bucket. Um, And he said, you know, culture is like this too. Um, Culture actually comes from earth, you know, agriculture. It's a thing that makes something conducive for growth. And that's what culture is for our society. It's something that gives us constellations of meaning and a home in which we become who we are inside of a culture. Um, And he said, how is culture created? The same way as the bucket. Stories fall through time. Songs fall through time. Bad experiences happen and everyone learns their lesson and those lessons come through time. Good things happen and everyone learns their lesson and those fall through time. Wisdom, rules of thumb, things we should never do again, things we should keep doing. Um, Turns of phrase that make things go quicker because we all understand what you mean when you say cat's got your tongue or, um, you know, stitch in time saves nine or something. Um, uh, It all falls through time. If there is no bucket, all of that dissipates. Um, there, no culture is created. It just blows in the wind. It's forgotten. But if some people choose to be a bucket, if some people choose to be that centripetal force that, that remembers, that retells, that invites people in to be part of the inside of this culture and this culture making, um, you create the most amazing thing on earth. Earth, culture, the thing that we can grow in, rich soil uh, for human flourishing. And the great challenge of that Wendell Berry parable is we got to be the bucket, but that bucket only comes from stability. If you're not stable in a place, you're not going to be part of a culture. If you're not stay, and what I try to expand that to is it doesn't have to be a place. It could be to a person, a family culture, to a craft practice, like a, you know, the practice of being basketball players or being guitar players or whatever, to an institutional or religious, you know, thing, to a shared startup idea, to a shared cause that's going over 40 years. You know, the abolitionists built a culture of being an abolitionist that kept them going together, or as Wendell Berry likes to talk about, to a place. Um, And so one of the great challenges of this um, book is to be the bucket um, so that we can build some culture so that there can be conducive soil for our, uh, our uh, descendants to flourish in. I love that example. It's, uh, it also has a lot to do with patience. <laughs> Things Amen. take time. Yeah. If there, was, if there was another chapter in your book, now that it's been out since May, 
Is there one thing that, you know, if you had to write an extended version of it or thought about something you've learned since, I'm sure a lot of people have approached you now and you've heard even more stories about dedication and commitment. I was just curious what that would be. Yeah, you know, I I would say um uh I would say that I had this insight during the interviews from the book that um I never put in the book actually and I think it really captures a lot of what I'm trying to get at which is this idea of taking care of your future self which I talked about earlier that those who are infinite browsing and those who are dedicating are both doing a a thing that they believe is good, which is taking care of your future self. You know, this is what the marshmallow test is. It's trying to teach kids, you know, this is one of our goals if we're parents or, you know, taking care of the young. We're trying to teach kids, sometimes you can't just serve your present self. You also have to serve your future self. And infinite browsing mode, it's kind of this kindness to it, which is saying, when you're doing this, you're doing a good thing. You think you're serving your future self, but I just want to tell you you're misled. <laughs> you know, It's not that you're bad for doing this. It's just that you're misled about what your future self wants. And so that would be one of the insights that didn't make it into the book, but I've discovered from talking about it. And, um, and yeah, no, I've, I, I, I have too many to count. You know, my greatest joy from doing this, um, from doing this book tour is people coming up to me and telling me their long haul hero stories, either of themselves, their own long haul, like how it made it look back on their life of what they were dedicated to, or the people that they're grateful for um, uh, to be dedicated, you know, for their dedication. Pete, thank you so much for the stories and for your time. And congrats again on the book. How can people get a hold of you? Um, I am at PeteDavis.org. I'm on Twitter at Pete D. Davis. I'm at email at contact at PeteDavis.org. So um, looking forward to hearing from each of you on your own long haul hero stories and what you think of the book. Fantastic. Thanks, Thank you so much for your time today. So appreciate it. Great final thoughts, Pete. Take care of your future self. Focus more on the journey or the process. That's what Rich Roll and I spoke about last week. And I think that is so right on. Dedication is something we all need to achieve our larger goals. Thank you for listening today. If you got something out of this episode, please share it with a friend and subscribe. I have some great guests and content coming up, and I'd love for you to continue this journey with me. Until next week, remember you, me, we are not almost there.